also eat up too much time. Um, so we're talking about life animated by and with Jesus, right? Animation to breathe life into something, to bring life to something. And, and, and in our Christian walks, not just have head knowledge, but to actually experience scriptural truth concretely, uh, to have it come alive in our hearts and lives. Diane Langberg, if, I don't know if you know her, but she's a local counselor, speaker, wonderful, very intelligent, very well-spoken woman. I love Diane. But she tweeted out a great uh, quote uh, in this vein recently where she said this, the word written and the word made flesh are to be one. Do not ever divorce the two, which is really what we're saying, Right. Um, we've discussed in past sermons the use of our imagination in the area of truth from 2 Corinthians 3.18, which, is, which says this, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And we remember that that word contemplate means to behold or to reflect on an image in your imagination, to wrap your imagination around truth, to, to wrap your, your imagination around who God really is and all that kind of stuff, and that we are, we are transformed uh, incrementally into the, into the likeness of Christ. And, and to do that, uh, we, we find this what the old fathers, Christian fathers would call the inner sanctum. We call it a quiet time these days, right? Um, but let's call it the inner sanctum because it sounds new, right? Uh, the inner sanctum where we meet with Jesus and we, we commune with him and we actually are changed. We are transformed by that. <clears throat> we have said in past that we all have this mental image of God in our heads and what we say we believe, what comes out of our mouth like my theology, right? Oh, I know this about God and that about God. What we say that we believe isn't really what drives us but our internal image of who God is really drives us, right? It's our worldview, if you want to put it in a different language. And in past weeks, we've seen that our image of God dictates our response to God, and it also defines our own self-image. Very important point, actually. And so a healthy image of God, informed by the Scriptures and enfleshed in this encounter with Jesus or these ongoing encounters with Jesus, makes for a healthy view of ourself. Makes for a really good, healthy view of ourself. And this week, we answer the question, how does all of this relate us to other people around us, right? How, how does all this translate into community with each other and with the outside world? Not just in Christian community, but in other people like the men I sat with last night around a table. And this sermon is titled, Clever Disguises, because the Lord wears clever disguises in life. And we need to be able to see that and understand that. So let's start by looking at Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Uh, It says, then the king will say to those on his right, remember this is talking about last days, right? The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And I needed clothes, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you looked after me. And I was in prison, and you came to visit me. We showed the, that uh, a little video of the parable of the, uh, the Good Samaritan last night uh, to the Muslim community. It was pretty cool. Verse 37, 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now let's take a look now. Let's jump over to Revelation 12.10. And these two passages passages don't seem to have much to do with each other, but I think we're going to find out that they do. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now, if we could see all of life and everything around us with kingdom eyes all the time, if we could live out Matthew chapter 25 verses, whatever those verses were that I told you, 35 through 40, I think it was, how would life change, right? How would we live differently? To view God for who God truly is and also to view ourselves in light of that relationship to this divine being and also to take that and view others through that lens of Jesus in the world. How would we engage with people differently and where would we find Jesus throughout our days, right? But you got to remember there is always one who stands in the way of our healthy interactions with each other and that is Satan, the accuser spoken of in Revelation 12.10. His chosen role is to accuse to create guilt, to separate, to destroy, to break things down. And the accuser creates all of our problems. And we talked about this uh, maybe last week or the week before, but it says, we said from the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, he made that accusation to Eve and that, that God was holding out on them, right? That he was not giving them the whole truth, that he was lying to them, that he was threatened by this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as soon as Eve believes this accusation about God, she believes one about herself. Because our personal image of self is intimately tied to our image of God. Right? It's the natural progression of things. It's how we operate. And we know that Satan is the cosmic legalist, you know, he says, you don't, you didn't do this right, you know, you're not good enough at this or that, right? He says, that's not exactly true, is it, when God tries to speak to you? He's always constantly injecting doubt and suspicion into our thinking. And every lie about God involves a lie about us. And these lies finger out into our relationships and how we treat each other and how we regard each other. And every issue is directly or indirectly linked to the accusations of the accuser in life. It is what we deal with. So we judge God, we judge ourselves, and we judge others. And every judgment, every wrong judgment blocks uh, love from God to us and, and love from our, uh, for, to ourselves and also love from us to others. And that is the center of the kingdom of God. You remember Jesus said to love God and love others as yourself. That's like the center of it all. 
And that's why, we, why the tree they ate from was the tree of, good, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil because when we eat of it, we think that we are omniscient. We think that we're all-knowing, don't we? That we get to define what things and people around us are good and which ones are evil. And, and although, that, although we, we've never had that cap- capability, we've never had that capacity. But because we think we do, we trust in our own ideas about who God is and who we are and who others are more than we trust how God defines all of these persons and all of these relationships and how we should regard each other. And we're all in bondage to the accuser at some level. And one of the clearest signs of this is that when you begin to see who God really is, you begin to feel guilty instead of feeling loved, right? You begin to feel guilty instead of feeling loved. Intellectually, you know, we can see his grace. We can, we can grasp it intellectually, but deep down you think, well, when the, when's the other shoe going to drop? Sure. It feels good now, but when, when will I see the harsh side of God? Then you think the same thing about yourself. In light of that, you say, how could God truly accept and truly love a person like me? Does he understand what I've done? What I've thought? And then we think the same thing about others. And to to avoid feeling bad about ourselves, we say, at least I'm not as bad as that guy or that girl. Right? And we start to point the finger. The news is very good for that, isn't it, these days? It really is. And when you hear that, yeah, right, in your brain... You're directly confronting the accuser in your thoughts, in your heart. And to the degree that you give in to the accusations that are being fed to you, it will be impossible to experience the abundant life that Jesus has promised of loving God and loving self and loving others. Because to the degree that we believe a lie about God, we believe it about ourselves, and then it translates to believing it about others, right? So our ability to contemplate Jesus in scriptural truth defines everything. God took the time to write the Bible. We should take it seriously. But we don't dare believe what God says about himself and about others and about ourselves because we are brain damaged. We are Dane damaged, right? As you used to say when you were a kid, right? We can't be trusted to judge anybody, even our own hearts we can't judge. We need a source of tangible credibility which is larger than and, and trustworthy because my, dam- my damaged brain, my brain's brain damaged Dane, Can't make these calls, right? It just can't. The only one who can is the one and true trustworthy God. So listen, just listen to some of the things which are true about us. I'm sorry, these slides might not be easy to read, some of them. But uh, under the category of I'm accepted, because Scripture teaches this, I'm accepted. I am God's child. I'm not going to read all the verses, but these are just these statements uh, that these verses communicate if you take the time to, re- to uh, look them up. But I'm God's child. I am, I am Christ's friend. 
I've been justified. I'm united with the Lord and one with him in spirit. I've been bought with a price. I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I am a saint. I have been adopted as God's child. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all of my sins. I am complete in Christ. That's good stuff. I'm secure. I'm free from ever, forever from condemnation. I am assured that all things work together for good. I am free from any condemning charges against me. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am confident in the good, the good work that God has begun in me and will be perfected in me. I'm a citizen of heaven. I am a, I'm hidden in Christ and God. I am not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. I can find grace and mercy to help me in the time of need. I am born of God, and the evil one can't touch me. He can't destroy me. I'm significant. You ever, do you think you're significant, right? I am the salt of the earth. I am a branch of the true vine, a channel of his life. I have been chosen and appointed to to bear fruit. I am a personal witness of Jesus. I am God's temple. I am a minister of reconciliation. I am God's worker, co-worker. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I am God's workmanship. I can approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Preach it, brother. Come on, give me an amen. Right? Doesn't that feel good? Right? (laughs) Can we believe these things? Can we truly believe these things about ourselves? Because the accuser leads us to think it's wrong for me to believe these things about myself. It's why it's so vital to spend our time with Jesus, to experience Him in our mind's eye, to wrap wrap our minds around Him, not to just reflect on abstract truth and become a better theologian. You know, gosh, that's so dead, isn't it? But to actually meet with Jesus, right? To actually meet with Jesus, behold His glory, and to be transformed by it. Maybe we need to run videos in our minds about we, what we would look like if we were more like Jesus, right? And to do so, we might help, it might help us to manifest truth about who we are in, in, in Christ. Because if you can't first meet with Jesus there in your prayerful imagination, it won't happen in life, right? It just won't happen in life. Nothing happens in life outwardly which hasn't happened inwardly first, Right? In your imagination. Nothing happens without practice. And in the process of contemplating or beholding and putting flesh to truth, we confront the accuser and all his lies are defeated. Written word and word made flesh becoming one, as Diane puts it. I like that. And the same is true with how we regard others. True? Right? We need also to take our thoughts captive to Christ about other people in this world. We really do. But the trouble is that we have this accuser between our ears, right? If we believed lies about God, we'll not, all, we, we, we'll, we'll not get all the fullness that God wants for us, which then won't overflow out to others. And only in Jesus can I find life. 
And if I'm not finding life from Jesus, I'm going to try to get it from you. I'm going to try to get it from others, which doesn't work. Never has worked, never will. Even from your spouse, it won't work. We can't help it, right? We're wired that. We have to get life from somewhere. It's built into us. It's how we operate. We need to get life. And if it's not from God, then others are the natural go-to. And the second we do, we're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all over again. All over again. Choosing ourselves where to find life and, 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 and what we think is life-giving and what we think is good for us. But remember, we're, we're bad choosers in that. We evaluate everything in front of us as food which will feed us Life or not feed us life. We call good that which we think will give us life, and we call evil that which we think won't give us life. The problem is we're terrible, terrible, terrible judges of it. So notice the chatter in your brain as you drive down the street or you go to work or you watch the news. And you'll notice all the thoughts going on your head about other people. And every one of those thoughts, which doesn't emanate from Christ-like love, blocks Christ-like love towards those people. Which is why we have to take all of our thoughts captive to Jesus. It's that important. For example, some of you feel it's absolutely, positively wrong to love a certain group of people or a certain person unconditionally. You actually feel that way. Your heart says, I'm not supposed to love them like this. I'm supposed to confront them. There's lots of them out there to choose from. White supremacists. That's big in the news right now, right? See, part of idolatrous religion is to separate people in the black and white categories of in and out. And to look down on those who are out. It's how we gain a temporary false sense of life from others. Judgment feels good for a moment. Feels good to point the finger, right? If we grew up in a legalistic church, it's, it's trained us to contrast ourselves to other groups of people or other individuals, and we feel righteous because we're not like them. We even feel righteous for hating certain people. If we're honest, Christians have sometimes taken that to the extreme, right? Our right beliefs became justification for murder in the right circumstances. Shameful. There's, there, there, that's evidence of the accuser's activity in our brains, in our communities. Who we decide to love is sometimes very arbitrary, isn't it? It may depend on their political ideology or where they are born or the color of their skin or if they dress the same way as me or so on. You know, you just pick your thing, right? It's arbitrary. It's not based on the Word of God. Let's say our neighbor moves in next door, new neighbors, and it's a gay couple. And they invite you to their housewarming party. What's the first concern for the Christian? who has convictions in these areas. Their first concern is if I go, you know, isn't that condoning a sinful lifestyle? If I walk into the party, 
right? But why should that be our pet issue? Why should be that, that be the one thing that we get upset about and we reserve our love for somebody else and not that person? Do we feel the same about our gossipy, greedy, gluttonous, and self-righteous neighbors, right? Do we feel the same about them? What is it about this one particular issue that would make us not go to their party but, welcome, but, but also welcome other people? We'll go to our angry, misogynistic neighbor's party who drinks too much and suddenly treats his wife like crap all throughout dinner because in some illogical way, he's just a guy that needs Jesus. Right? What if a Pakistani Muslim couple moved into your house, next door to your house, uh, after the events in New York City this past week? And the man was in full white robe with a white beard, a long white beard and a skull cap. And his wife was covered in black burqa from head to toe. Would you take them cookies and say, welcome to the neighborhood? (laughs) Or would you gather with your other neighbors and fertilize rumors? I don't know if Jesus can bake, but I think he would bring them cookies. Probably not store-bought either. The answer is, <laughs> there's no objective reason why we wouldn't go to, e- to either neighbor's party or to our new Muslim neighbor's house and welcome them. But we have been con- socially conditioned by a religious group of people to particularly look down on a certain groups of people more than others. We really have. We've been trained by a religious group of people who've been under the influence of the accuser's lies, who has conditioned us to think that in a certain way about one thing and not that way about other things. Some of the meanest people I've ever met are in church, right? That's Pharisaism, right? Pharisees, the, the, the religious ruling class of Jesus' day, looked at Jesus who went to all the parties of the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and they said, look at him. Just by going to their party, he's he's condoning all their sin. Like he's participating in it, right? But we know for a fact that Jesus does not condone sin. He was extravagant in his love while remaining unwavering in his holiness. So we're not saying overlook sin. We need to love like Jesus. That's who we're trying to be like. So we need to love like Jesus to rebuke pharisaical thought. To confront the accuser who makes us feel guilty for loving other people well. Ephesians 5.2 says, live in, uh, live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He gave his life as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You can't love too much, even if it takes you to death. Remember Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't fear them. Who cares? What we need, America is so low in our Christianity. We need people that are willing to die for the gospel. Not willing to kill people for the gospel, but willing to die for the gospel. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you, be, you do be done in love. Love others as you have been loved. Same message, right? Matthew 5, 44 through 47 says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? 
so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. There's a lot of really nice people out there. What separates you? Right? The sun doesn't decide who it's going to shine on. The rain doesn't decide who it's going to fall on. So we're we're to love indiscriminately, right? Indiscriminately. Never giving a second's thought as to whether we should love somebody or not. Are they worthy of love, of grace, of mercy or not? Isn't the question. It's not the question. They are all worthy. Everybody out there is worthy of it. God's ascribed worth to them despite their behavior, and by the way, despite your behavior. (laughs) Right? No one deserves God's love and mercy, His love and grace. Nobody deserves it, but they are worthy of it nonetheless. Chew on that this week, that statement. Chew on that. That's a good statement. Let go of all evaluation and judgment. Love indiscriminately. That's what the message is. But the enemy comes along and says, if you love like that, you're condoning sin. You're doing it wrong. So we feel guilty about loving too much. But loving someone doesn't mean that you condone everything that they do. Does it? I don't condone everything my wife does, but I love her indiscriminately, hopefully. I don't condone everything that I do, for that matter. But I kind of like myself, right? To love doesn't mean that you condone sin. It doesn't. Or that everyone gets to do whatever they want. It doesn't mean that either, right? And that becomes really clear in abusive situations, right? It's a little bit strange there, because not only do you ascribe worth to others, but also to yourself, So sometimes loving an abusive person means to create distance and to set boundaries and and challenge them to step up to being loving themselves. Martin Luther King was brilliant at this. I think he was one of the most brilliant people of of the last century. I really do. He was brilliant. He knew, he knew that freeing whites from from their sin of oppression Freeing whites from their sin of oppression was an act of love towards them. He brought godly dignity to both sides, black and white, through pacifistic, quiet protest. He was a beautiful man. His thoughts were far above mine. For him, the sin was always the issue. He didn't condone condone what they did. The sin was always the issue, not the people controlled by the sin. Brilliant man. Read some of his stuff. You'll be changed. To live in love means we agree with God. We agree with God. Every person has worth. Every person has worth. Every person has value because God said so. Because God said so. Not because they do exactly what I want or they agree with everything that I say. It means 
we take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we put it aside, the very tool that the accuser uses to make us think that we know it all or have the right to judge anybody because that's not our place. The accuser says to us that you fix the world by withholding love from certain people. And if you love certain people, you're breaking the world. That's what the accuser tells you. That you're feeding their credibility, that you're giving them a voice, and you can't do that. And in the extreme, as we've said, the feeling develops to we despise, we hate, we defeat, and we even kill certain kinds of people, and the world will be a better place if they're all gone. That never works, by the way. We have to let go of the propensity to think that we can fix the world by our superior intellect, our superior wisdom, or our judgment of others. Let's allow God to be God and let's do what He's asked us to do. Right? Because Romans 12 says, love your enemy. Very counterintuitive. Love your enemy. Feed them when they're hungry. Give them something to drink when they're thirsty. Leave all vengeance, all retaliation, and all judgment to God. We're only called to love others. It means to live in service towards humanity. Do we dare? Do we dare to love like 1 Corinthians 13? To believe and hope the best for others? To regard everyone as Jesus did as He hung on the cross when He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The very people that nailed the nails into His hands and His feet and stuck that crown of thorns on His head. The poor. Man, how painful would that be? Is that our attitude? Is that our attitude to the Muslim world? To anybody? Wouldn't it be free, freeing for us to let go of the burden of being God ourselves? <laughs> right? And of judging everybody out there. My coworker, my family, my friends, whoever. Because when you extend grace to others, you'll begin to experience the grace that God has for you. Right? Paul said, I am the worst of sinners. Some people hear him say that and they think that's self-deprecating. That's not self-deprecating. It's freeing. It's freeing. Because what it says is, I'm no better than any of you. Anybody in this world. We're all on equal standing before the eyes of God. And when you know that, when you can own that in your heart, when it not only becomes information, but it actually is owned and enfleshed in your heart, then you can fully receive grace and practice Matthew 25, and you can find freedom. Remember, religion always sides with the accusers against the accused. Religion always sides with the accusers against the accused, but Jesus always sides with the accused against the accusers. Which side do you want to be on? Right? He says, I am particularly on the side of those who are crushed, the hurting sinners whose need is so evident. What you do to them, you do to me. Now, stop right there because a lot of you just went into the accuser's world. What if we said this whole sermon? We are all the accused. So I can't look at another group of people and say, they're all evil. So when I say Jesus sides 
on the side of the accused against the accusers. He's for both. He's for everybody. And when you know this, when you know this, when, you, when it becomes real to you, oh, the world becomes a stage of clever disguises. It really does. You see Jesus everywhere and in everyone, don't you? And Jesus said, if you love only those close to you, there's no reward. But if you love your enemies because you're like your Father in heaven who shows his, or showers His grace on all people, you begin to silence the accuser. The sound of judgment is a disgusting, sucking sound, isn't it? Trying desperately to suck life out of other people instead of out of Jesus. We need to commit ourselves to loving others, and sometimes we overthink it, don't we? Keep it, I love like the, the AA program and NA program. Keep it simple, stupid is one of their, <laughs> one of their like, mottos, right? Keep it simple, stupid, right? Kiss. C.S. Lewis once said, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Don't sit there and like, do I really love him or not? You know, getting all that, that philosophic quandary. Don't, don't waste time bothering whether or not you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Act as if you did. You know, if, if you've got a neighbor you really don't like, you should probably bring that person cookies. <laughs> right? As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him or her. And remember, those of you who are married, this is great advice. When your spouse does something, you're like, ah, I'm going to kill you. Love them anyway. Right? Feelings follow decisions. Feelings follow truth. Let me say that twice. Feelings follow decisions. Feelings follow truth. Right? Three things to remember today. Firstly, if you're running on empty, you won't be able to help but sucking off of others. Right? Judging them. You know, looking down on them. But remember, Jesus is the only one who can satisfy you. The only one. And when he does satisfy you, that satisfy you, his love overflows out of us towards others. Secondly, we commit to loving others as Christ loved us, no matter how it feels without listening to the accuser. And thirdly, Ask God to change your representation of those you have trouble loving. To change your outlook on people. He will do it. It's, see, it's easy to love the victim and hate the, hate, hate the abuser, right? It really is. But the gospel says all are worthy of God's love. All are worthy of God's love. It's possible you know, is it, is it at all possible that Jesus can give us an image of the abuser and why they are the way they are? What formed their deviance? And imagine that Christ could actually heal the abuser as well. Can we love them that much? Can we let them pound the nails into our hands and our feet? Can we suck the last breath of, into our bodies and die on our crosses? Right? 
Who are your enemies? It's an important question today, right now. It is a really important question. Political enemies, national enemies, party enemies, social or cultural enemies, personal enemies, past or present, somebody that's hurt you, a family member that did something horrific to you. Who is it? A boss, a coworker, whatever it is. I want to invite you right now, right this moment, let's go to prayer. I want you guys to bow your head and I want you to close your eyes. And as we do that, I want us to think about your own personal enemy, whether it's a person, an individual, or it's a group of people. Just bow your head with me and I'm going to lead us through this. Think about that person and allow your feelings towards them to sweep over you. Don't Don't pretend you don't have hurtful or angry feelings towards that person because they are real. They are real. I'm going to give you a minute just to think about that. You know who your enemy is. You know who you dislike. You know that that person or that group of people that you would come close, if you have not already, could say that you hate them. That you think this world would be better off without them. You know those people that have hurt you and it's hard for you to forgive. We're not denying that those feelings are strong. But now let's ask God, in your own personal way, where you are sitting right there, ask God to give you an image of that person or that group of people's pain. What formed them? What brought them to the point of acting the way they they have acted? Now as God rounds out that image, what we find, just staying in a prayerful pose here, what we find is that His compassion can finally grow in us. So ask Him, ask the Holy Spirit to give you the capacity to see them as He sees them. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you the capacity to say, I forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. They don't know what they've done.
Holy Spirit, we, we lay down our hearts and our minds in front of you. I get this image of just laying down a, a package, a parcel, just uh, wrapped in cloth. And as we lay it at your feet, we unwrap it. And that is our heart. That is our thoughts. That is our mind. That is everything that governs how we see you, how we see ourselves, and how we see others. And we lift it over our heads. And we ask that you would shape and form that. That that if there is unforgiveness in our hearts, if there is hatred in our hearts, if there is haughty pride and bitterness in our hearts towards others, that we would give that up today before we come to this Lord's table and celebrate how you gave of yourself even for the people that killed you. And we realize through this study that we all killed you. That we all turned on you. But you loved us enough to walk this earth, to talk with us, to eat with us, to bleed for us, to sweat blood for us, to go under the knife, so to speak, for us. And we, we want to be that kind of person in this world, the kind of person that turns away from the crowd and actually loves the enemy, turns away from the popularity and does something profound and beautiful in this world. So as we come to celebrate this Lord's table, we, we remember that night up in that room how you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then you took the cup and you lifted it up and you said, this is my blood spilled, poured out, shed for you. And every time you, we drink this cup and every time we eat this bread, we remember what you've done and we remember what you call us to. And we thank you for that.